morning. How are we? Awesome. My name is Joey. I'm the lead pastor here. For those of you that are new, we want to say welcome to all of our guests. We do believe that you are VIPs. That stands for very important person. Why? Because the philosophy we have here at Vertical Life Church is that everyone matters to God. Everyone. And so we say that over and over again because we want you to know and to feel that when you come here, that you matter. God has a purpose and a plan for your life. He would not have sent his son to die on the cross to restore relationship with you if you didn't matter. And that's why we're here, to celebrate what God has done in our lives. Now, we're in uh, Matthew. We'll be in Matthew chapter 19 if you have your Bible with you today. If you don't have your uh, physical Bible with you, but you have a digital copy, you can go ahead and navigate there. As we do every week, we ask uh, you to kind of give us a shout out on Facebook or social media if you're connected, uh, just as a way to tell your friends and family what God is doing in this place to get uh, the gospel out and to enable our ministry to reach as many people as possible. So if you want to check in and let people know you were here today, we would appreciate that. But uh, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 19. And today we're going to look at a really famous story. This is a story that uh, I heard about when I was a young child. It's always kind of stayed with me. It's about the rich man, the rich man that it comes to Jesus and asks him a very unique question. And today we're going to discover the principle that I call the principle of release and reward. Because our God is a good God, and he wants to reward us. He wants to bring blessing Jesus said that he came to give us life and life overflowing or abundantly. God didn't come just so that we could survive this life, but that's so we could have an incredible life. And so we're going to see this principle of release and reward and how that works out in the story of this rich man. Uh, beginning in chapter 19, verse 16 of Matthew, this is what the word of the Lord records. It says, someone came to Jesus with this question, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life. And on that, we're going to pray and we're going to get started. Father in heaven, we just commit this time to you, Jesus, God. I just pray that you would remove me from this place. And God, that your will, your word would be done. God, we uh, just need an encounter with you. We, need, we are starving for your presence and to know what your will is for our lives, God. Because we know that your will is our best intention at heart, God, that you have nothing but good things planned for us. And so, God, I pray that as we look at your word and see how we can live for you and trust you, Lord, that you would just reveal those good plans and intentions to us today. And uh, I pray, God, that if anyone is here today that doesn't know how much you love them, that doesn't know what you have planned and in store for them, God, that before they leave this place, they would go all in with Jesus and just experience that, that uh, relationship that you've been dying to give them. God, and I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 19, verse 16, this guy comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to be saved, to have eternal life? Uh, it was uh, about a year ago or so now that Tony and I made a decision. It was a very difficult decision. I mean, it was cost a lot of tension in our house, but we decided we were going to give up cable. I don't know if you guys have made that decision or not, but and that was tough, man. Uh, you know, to give up cable, I mean, you mean I can't turn on the TV and mindlessly flip through channels that have nothing to watch, but yet take up all my time? You know, this was just something we decided to do. But we kept our internet access because we needed email, we needed things like that. And then we discovered the amazing invention called Netflix. 
and Hulu. Anybody subscribe to Netflix and Hulu? Yes? Yeah. And, and so as we discovered this, we realized, oh, this giving up cable thing wasn't going to be so bad because I discovered something called binge watching. Anybody binge watch? Right? Maybe because you don't have cable, you can't watch the shows the day they're released, but you wait a couple weeks and you could watch like hours and hours and hours of your favorite show. And so every once in a while, I'll discover a new show that I just have to binge watch. And uh, recently, um, I'm kind of a, a nerd. I like uh, archaeology and historical uh, uh, film and historical shows. And I found a new show with Morgan Freeman called The Story of God. Oh, it sounds so spiritual. You know I'm a pastor. I'll be into that, right? The story of God. Well, Morgan Freeman, he is a very renowned actor. He's famous. He's been in a lot of famous films like Driving Miss Daisy and the Batman Dark Knight series. And, and uh, he's really also famous for a couple of movies he was in where he played God, Bruce Almighty and Evan Almighty. And so this is just kind of when people think of God in Hollywood, they think Morgan Freeman, right? That's just the voice of God. And so here he is in this show, The Story of God, and the point of the show is to kind of figure out a couple of things. One, does God actually exist? Is there a God? And, uh, and if he does exist, what do I have to do to make it into the afterlife? Or, or if God doesn't exist, how did this belief in God come about? How did the different cultures, different regions of the world, how did we develop this idea of God? And so he, he tries to answer the very same fundamental question that this rich man has when he approaches Jesus Christ. And what that reveals to us is that this is a question that has been asked since mankind fell. And Adam and Eve were in the garden. They had perfect relationship with God. There was nothing that they were withheld from. God had given them the whole world. And then sin enters the picture, fractures that relationship, and we lost something. We lost that relationship with God. And since that day, we have been plagued with this question, why do I exist? Is there a God? Is there something after this? If God does exist then how do I get God to like me enough to let me go to heaven? Or some people call it to bring me into transcendence or enlightenment, that, that my life in this life would not only be good, but my next life would also be good. How do I do that? So as I've been watching this show over the course of many episodes, basically he decides or comes to the conclusion that religion was invented as a method to help us discover this pathway into a better existence, into this life. And that many of the world's religions for tens of thousands of years, as far back as we have recorded history, they've developed a set of requirements or a creed or commandments, a system of living and belief to help guide their adherence to a blessed life and a blessed afterlife. And so depending on which belief, Buddhism, Hinduism, they all have their idea of what comes next. And here in the story with Christ, in Matthew chapter 19, we have a culture that was predominantly Jewish. It was a Jewish culture, a Jewish land. And here we have a rich man who was a very devout Jewish person. And Judaism was no different than all these other religions. God had given his people, through the prophet Moses, a set of commandments that uh, he articulated through Moses, and with the promise that if Israel follows these commandments, 
They would be his people, and he would be their God. In other words, Israel, if you follow these laws, you follow these commandments, we will have what? Relationship. We'll have a restoration of what you lost. But there's something really profound about this rich guy's question, this man's question. Because he not only asks him, what do I have to do to get into heaven? But there's something deeper that's revealed in this question. And something that this, this guy has discovered about religion, even the Jewish religion itself. And Jesus, as he's having this conversation with this man, begins to unpack kind of what this deeper, uh, this deeper principle is. And Jesus, in verse 17, he responds to the man. He says, why ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. Now, in the original translation, the New Testament was written in the Greek language. And in the original language and in other translations of the Bible, when the man asked Jesus, what do I have to do to get into heaven? He refers to Jesus as the good master or good teacher. And so when Jesus says, why ask me about what is good, there is only one who is good. Jesus was kind of hinting at something. See, the rich man was using this term good master, good teacher as a form of flattery. He was kind of trying to butter Jesus up. But in Jesus' response to him, he reveals that the man didn't really know what he was saying. He didn't know what he was asking. Jesus says, there is only one who is good, and that is God. So in essence, if you are calling me good, you are implying with this question that you must be recognizing something. That if I am good, then who I really am must be God. And if I am God, you should not only be willing to hear what I have to say, but also do what I have to say. In other words, that if you believe I am good, then your life should match your belief. But I also believe he's implying with this response that if you are not interested in what I have to say then you must not really believe that I am God, and therefore you must not believe that I am good. Therefore, asking me this question is the result of an ulterior motive in your heart. You're not really concerned about who I am at all. And see, Jesus doesn't correct him. He's not saying, look, don't call me good because I'm not God. He's not saying that at all. But he says this statement to kind of set up what he says next. Because in the very next verse, we see him make a statement that is in the authority of only what God can give. It's the authority to grant eternal life. And this is a big deal because for, for us, for all the issues and all the challenges we face, all the questions we have, all of our situations and circumstances, I don't know what baggage you brought in with you today. I don't know necessarily what you've been struggling with this week. But what I do know is how we live, how we respond, how we believe is dependent on one simple thing. And it's the same thing this rich man was wrestling with. And that is, who is Jesus to me? That's the fundamental question. Who is Jesus? Because what you believe about Jesus will determine or change how you read the Bible, how you read his word. It'll change how you pray. It'll change how you choose to live your life, the things you choose to do. It changes everything. That is the fundamental question. And so Jesus continues after he makes this statement in verse 17. He says, but to answer your question... If you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. 
Now, if you think about what's happening here, you would think that, you know, oftentimes when we hear the voice of God as we read the word, we think Jesus is this really calm tone, you know, just very peaceful guy. Like, if you want eternal life, keep the commandments. You know, this is just, this is like God's voice, right? We don't hear Morgan Freeman. I'm not going to do an impression of him because it would be totally awful. But we often hear this calm, collective tone. But as Jesus is talking to this rich guy, I can actually sense a little sarcasm here. Because think about the setting. You're in Israel. It's a Jewish country. This is a Jewish man who, through the, the nation, and as they raised their men to understand the word of God, he would have known what the Torah or the five books of Moses or the law and the prophets said. He would have been educated in that. And so Jesus is basically giving a rhetorical statement. And, and I can sense some sarcasm here because I, he's kind of baiting him in this conversation. And, and as we look at this guy, we know he was a very wealthy man. I kind of think of Donald Trump whenever uh, I'm reading this. And I know he's uh, in the media and stuff today. But I can hear Jesus talking to this guy, and I related to Donald Trump. I can hear him say, you know, you know the word of God, right? You know what 2 Corinthians has to say. You know, if you guys uh, saw that, that little media blurb of Donald Trump's speech at a Liberty University, here this guy is at Liberty, at one of the predominant Christian colleges of our nation. He gives a speech, and he quotes from the Bible, and he calls it 2 Corinthians. And anyone that's ever been to a Sunday school class knows it's 2 Corinthians, not 2 Corinthians. You know, but this is also the same guy that never had to ask God for forgiveness. So, you know, we know that, that he knows his stuff. And so as I'm looking at this rich guy and comparing it to, to Donald Trump, I can kind of see Jesus being like, you know the word of God. You know what it has to say. God said keep the commandments or follow what you know. You obviously understand everything, being that you're this man of stature and, and renown. You know, and I think Jesus is leading this guy, really kind of being sarcastic to kind of develop or open this man's understanding to a deeper spiritual truth, what's going on in his heart. There was an ulterior motive for why he asked this question. And verse 18 kind of reveals this. He says, which ones? Asked the man. Now, if he was familiar with his religion, if he was as devout as what he claims later in this passage, he would have known that God says, if you keep all of these commands and decrees from the Lord, then I will be your God. He would have already known this. And so he says, which ones? As if to say, which ones are the most important? And Jesus replies, he says, you must not murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't testify falsely, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, don't do the don'ts. And do do the do's, Jesus says. Don't do the don'ts and do the do's. Verse 20, the man says, I've obeyed all of these commandments. What else must I do? You see, this rich guy was recognizing something. Even though he had everything together, do and don't wise, he had the law down, he was very obedient, very devout, there was still something missing. There was something broken in his life. And that's because religion attempts to guide us into a perfect life, one that's acceptable to God, one that earns his favor. That's what religion is designed to do. But religion cannot achieve what it's designed to do. It cannot lead us into perfection. And we see this in this conversation that Jesus goes on to tell him, look, if you follow the law perfectly, if you follow it perfectly, you still have something yet you have to meet. There's a standard yet for you to achieve. And this goes to the very heart of the gospel. This goes to the very heart of our Christian faith. 
In a Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, in the Old Testament, the prophet of the Lord declares this. He says, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? You see, religion's designed to get us good enough to be on par with God, to achieve that perfection that's acceptable. But here the prophet of the Lord says, you are so wicked, and you're wicked to the point that your heart tries to convince you that you're not even as bad as you really are. You are more wicked than you could possibly imagine. And if you think of uh, times where you talk to your friends, you talk to them about Jesus and faith and repentance, oftentimes you'll hear, hear people say, you know what, I'm a good person. Right? I'm not that bad. I'm a good person. I think when I get to heaven, God will accept me. But if you think about Jesus' conversation here with the rich guy and how he says that no one is good but God, to call yourself a good person when sin lies in your heart is to put you on par with God. It's to put yourself on the equal footing with God. That is an act of blasphemy and idolatry. So we don't understand what we're saying when we say a lot of the things in this life because our hearts are so racked with sin, so saturated with sin, that we don't even have a proper perspective of who we really are. Paul in Romans chapter 3, 23, he says, everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. What is that standard? That is the perfection of God. That's being holy as he is holy, righteous as he is righteous. Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 64, 6, he says that we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Compared to the perfection and righteousness of God, the best that we can hope to offer him because of the sin that's in our heart is still undesirable. And religion, the, the things that we invent to try to get ourselves in God's good graces, the things that we try to win God's approval with is nothing to God. Religion can't hope to bring us into uh, a relationship with God. And so here Jesus is telling the rich man, even if you were to keep the entire law, the fact that sin lies within your heart keeps you from going to the next level. The do's and the don'ts of religion do not bring about our salvation. Where we get backwards oftentimes is that the do's and the don'ts of our faith should be a result of our salvation, not to earn our salvation. I think of my kids, you know, when uh, um, before Tony and I had our first child, Jocelyn, when we were first married, we had a, a discussion about being parents and we kind of crossed being parents off the list. We're like, not interested, not having children. And, uh, and, and the reality was is that we really just wanted to live life for ourselves. We wanted to go on vacations. We wanted to take trips. We just wanted to live for ourselves. So we weren't going to be parents. I didn't even have any interest in that. And uh, when we found out that we were pregnant with Jocelyn, uh, our first child, I was freaked out. I'm like, how am I supposed to, I can't even raise myself. How am I supposed to raise this, this child? And even in the delivery room, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, 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 you know, uh, what am I going to do? This is, this is crazy. How, how am I going to do this? Because in my heart, I didn't really want to be a father. But the moment I saw her head, my life was different. I was a completely different person. I went from, I can't stand kids, I don't want kids, to I would die for that child. It was instantaneous. 
I was a completely different person. And then look at us now. We've got four little rugrats running around driving us crazy, right? So obviously something changed. This is something that you don't have to earn the love of your parents as a child. My daughter, Jocelyn, didn't have to do anything other than be in existence to earn my love. And the same thing is true as children of God. There is nothing that we can do to earn God's love and acceptance and forgiveness. There's nothing we can do. And the beauty of the gospel is we don't have to do anything. He's already achieved everything. You don't earn your parents' love by doing what they say or trying to follow the rules. You obey what your parents say and what their rules are because you love them and you want to respect them and you want to honor what they say. And the same is true with our relationship with God. The do's and don'ts of our faith should be a result of our relationship, not to acquire our relationship. And see, our relationship with God is when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he takes our sin and nails it to the cross. He drowns us in his grace, and we receive his righteousness. Scripture says like a set of new clothes, that the righteousness of God gets placed around us so that when God looks at us as his children, he doesn't see our sin any longer, even though we wrestle with these sinful hearts. Uh, A couple weeks ago, Luke, Pastor Luke, brought a message talking about the duality of man and how even though we want to honor God, we still wrestle with our sinful nature. And this is what's taking place in this conversation with the rich man. God is saying, you're doing all the right things, but there's still something yet for you to achieve. There's still something in your heart that needs to be uh, delivered. You need the righteousness and perfection of God. And when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God gives us his righteousness. And many times that we have this crisis of faith, when we do something wrong or we step out of the will of God, we kind of beat up ourselves and we think God doesn't love us anymore. God, you know, we got to do all these things to get back in God's good graces. But the thing is, is Jesus took care of everything we ever needed to do. God loves us in spite of what we've done and who we are. The only thing that can restore a relationship with God, what was lost at the fall, was with a heart change. And a heart change begins when you repent of your sin and you turn to Jesus and say, you are my Lord and my Savior. Perfection comes through relationship. In verse 21 Jesus, as he's talking to this rich man, he says, if you want to be perfect, you've got the religion down. If you want to be perfect, you want to go to the next level. You want to be holy as he is holy, perfect as he is perfect. Here's what you got to do. You got to go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. He makes this invitation. You want to be perfect? We need relationship. We have to be in this together. Here's what you need to do. You need to turn away from what was before. The life that you've been trying to build, everything that you've been investing and worshiping in, that has to be put to death. You need to find new life in me, find your purpose in me, find your joy and your happiness in me. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, at another time, Jesus says, if you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, at that point, You will save it. This is what he's communicating to this rich man. He's saying, let go of what you've been holding on to and come and follow me. You think you're rich now? You think you've got possessions now? Come follow me and see how blessed and how rich you can become. But verse 22 says, when the young man heard this, he went away sad for he had many possessions. 
this is where the revelation of his true motive of his heart comes in. What he was really interested in when he asked that question, what do I have to do to be saved? Because this man, he lived entirely for himself. Everything he did, his spirituality, his obedience to the law, everything he did was because he was interested not in having a relationship with God, but he was interested in having fire insurance. Getting out of hell. A get-out-of-judgment-free card. This is all the man was interested in, is not being condemned. He was a wealthy man in this life. His wealth gave him security, comfort, stability, renown, influence, gave him peace of mind, gave him a sense of control over his whole life. And so when he asked Jesus, what do I have to do to be saved? He, in essence, was asking Jesus, what do I have to do to ensure my soul against the judgment of God? What do I have to do? He was trying to figure out a way to secure his eternity that would guarantee a blessed afterlife just as he was living a blessed life. In other words, he was trying to buy heaven with his good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, Paul tells the church of Ephesus, he says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. You cannot take credit for this. It's a gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so no one can boast about it. Right here, the apostle Paul is saying religion is not what saves you. Following the rules and commandments is not what restores your relationship with God. It's his grace given to you when you placed your faith and trust in him. There's nothing you can do to buy your way into heaven. So when Jesus says, give up your life, in other words, give up your comfort, your plans, your control, your career, give up everything you've built your life around and follow me, he's saying, begin to build your life around me. Give me your heart and then you'll be saved. Just like the song we just sang, my heart is yours. Take it all. That's what God desires from us. And when the man heard these words from Christ, he became broken. He walked away from God. So the reason why Jesus asked him to give up his wealth wasn't because Jesus had some bills to pay. He asked him to give up his wealth because he knew the man's God, the God he truly served, the God he truly worshipped was his own comfort and security. He had a self-centered, self-righteous, religious faith. He wasn't truly interested in having a relationship with God. He just wanted something from God. But see, if Jesus was good, meaning Jesus was God, just like he said when he made his opening remarks, he would be interested in hearing what God had to say. But he wasn't interested in giving Jesus his life. He would just wanted Jesus to affirm his life and his choices and bless him with what he wanted. Rather than turn his life and his choices over to Jesus, he didn't want relationship. He wanted to continue to walk in his religion. And that's where many of us find ourselves today is we're killing ourselves trying to earn God's grace, trying to earn our ticket to heaven. Because what we really are interested in is not a relationship with God where he has all of us. We're really interested in what we can get from God. Uh, this past week, we were driving in a car. I can't remember where we were going. I think it was like from the, to the soccer fields or away from our sporting events that we had going on. And I was kind of stressed out already that morning, and so tension was a, a little rough in the in the van. And, uh, you know, my kids, we, we do this thing every once in a while. I take the boys out one-on-one, -on -one and I call it buddy time, where we're just hanging out. 
And I take the girls out one-on-one. We call those daddy dates just so that we can maintain relationship and and uh, they can have my heart and I can have their heart and that type of thing. And usually what we do on buddy time or daddy dates is I get let them get to choose what we do to, uh, to go out, hang out, whether it's like to a movie or go to dinner and, or go someplace fun. We oftentimes go to the puppy store in the mall and get to, you know, gush over all the little um, puppies there. And, and so that's a lot of fun. But uh, th- this past week, as we were in the van, I think Reese started it. He started asking me, hey, Dad, we need to go on buddy time. So I'm thinking, okay. What do you want to do? And he's like, I want you to take me to Walmart and buy me stuff. <laughs> and then as soon as that came out of his mouth, another one's like, hey, I need some buddy time. I want you to take me here and buy me this. And then the girls started, we need daddy dates, and we want you to take us here and buy us this. And they start talking over and kind of arguing with each other about who gets to go next and who gets to go first and this back and the other. And so I'm listening to this, and I'm already kind of tense, and now I'm thinking, okay, they really don't want to be with me. They just want me to get them stuff. And so probably in my flesh, I reacted a little bit, and I kind of shut down the noise and raised my voice a little bit. And I'm like, how about you just want to go out with me to be with me? How about you just want to hang out with me because you love me because I'm your father and I love you because you're my child and we just want to be together. And if we do something fun, that gets to be the bonus. How come? How about we just do that? And I was really frustrated about what was happening. And I know that they, they weren't really understanding what they were doing. But you see, many of us are in the same place with our relationship with God. When we walk in this self-centered, self-righteous religion, because we may not be wealthy, But when it comes to our entire spiritual life, it's ultimately self-centered. It's born out of fear of judgment or guilt over God not loving us. And so we try to do things for God in order to get us ourselves into heaven or get his blessings in our life. And everything we do is not a result of, of loving him, but it's a result of not wanting to be judged or condemned as opposed to giving God our heart. And so when it comes to doing the things that are expected in this Christian life, when we pray, we pray out of duty. When we read his word, we read his word out of duty. When we attend church or small group or serve in a ministry, it's out of duty. When we tithe and give to him, it's out of duty. It's not really what we want to do, but we do it so that we can get something from God. Or we do it because we feel like if we don't, then he might not like us anymore. Instead of doing those things out of a love for God and a desire to just be with him and and have relationship with him. So when we act out of duty, when we act out of this religious self-centeredness, that's religion. That's not relationship. And this rich man, what happened was that he missed out on the fact that here God was standing right in front of him, making this offer. Hey, we could have this incredible relationship. You just have some stuff that's in the way. Get rid of that stuff and connect with me. Give me your heart. Come follow me, and your life will never be the same. And see, Jesus, he has a do-not-compete policy. Uh, When I was uh, living in Missouri, I worked for T-Mobile, and uh, whenever I I signed up to work for their customer service department, as part of the contract, they made me sign this do-not-compete clause, which meant that if I quit, I couldn't work for any other telecommunications company for about a year for fear of me giving up all of their secrets, like they were, you know, the the coolest thing out there. But but Jesus also has a do-not-compete clause. The very first commandment says what? You shall have what? No other gods before me. 
right? God has a do not compete clause. Jesus doesn't want to be second to anyone. God doesn't want to be second to anyone. And so he makes this invitation to us, give up your life, get rid of all of your gods, get rid of all the things holding you back from giving me your whole heart. Give me your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and I will restore you to the relationship that you desperately desire. But why it's so difficult for us to do that, to give up things that God doesn't want us to do, things that are bad for us, and even some things that aren't necessarily bad for us, they could be good things, but get in the way of us giving God our whole heart. It's because so often we are more interested in what we want God to give us than who we have in Jesus Christ. Just like my kids wanted to be with me so that I could give to them, we want to be with God so that we can get from Him. Paul tells the church of Corinth, he says that some people have their stomach as their God, that literally we can make gods out of anything, that idolatry is not just carving out an idol and bowing down to worship it. it is, it's giving your life and your desires and your and, and everything that you are to something that is not God himself. For some of us, it's our career. For some of us, it's a standard of living. For some of us, it's popularity. For some, it's literally the Chinese buffet. I mean, you can't get enough of the crab rangoon. You know what I'm talking about? You know, for some of us, it literally is the lust of the flesh, whether it be eating or pornography or what the case is. But we create gods out of Everything, anything we desire over God can be an idol in our life. And why it's so hard to give God our whole heart is because Jesus calls on us to be a disciple. He calls on us to get rid of our idols and follow him. And when Jesus calls that out, when you're, when you're praying, you're asking God, you know, what, what's wrong? What's going on in my heart? What do I have to do to get right with you? And he names your idol. We have a crisis of faith. We run to the excuse mill. We look for justifications as to why we, we can just keep doing what we're doing and not have to give those things up for God. And it, the thing is, it brings the same sorrowful heart that the rich man experienced. We have this crisis of faith. We're like, no, I don't want to give that up. Really, God, that i got to do that. I've got to sacrifice that because we are more invested in what we want than who we have. And that sorrow, that crisis of faith that we experience reveals where our heart is. It reveals what we really worship, what we really want, and what we really need to repent of. Verse 23, Jesus turns to his disciples after the man leaves, misses his opportunity to have a relationship with Jesus. He says, I tell you the truth. It's very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And this was a, a unique statement because in this time period, uh, people believed that the rich were actually those who were in God's Good graces, that they were the ones who were blessed by God. The poor, the, the sick, the, those in poverty were considered cursed of God in this culture. And so Jesus is making an incredible statement to his disciples. But oftentimes we get this understanding of the eye of the needle kind of confused. We picture like a, a needle and thread and a camel. And we're like, obviously, a, a camel cannot fit through the eye of a needle. But this is actually what the eye of a needle is. If you go ahead and throw that picture up there. It's a gate on the city wall. This is a, a, an eye of a needle gate, and there's another version that's a little smaller like this, and that's like a person actually kind of ducking through that. So when Jesus is referring to the eye of the needle, 
he's referring to a gate in the city wall. And as you can see, it's a narrow pathway. It's a small and a narrow pathway. And so what I believe Jesus is getting at here is he's not saying that it's impossible for rich people to be saved or people with wealth to get into heaven. But I think he's alluding to the fact that since a true heart change or true salvation comes from a heart change and that sometimes you, it's difficult to get rid of these gods in our life, that for a rich person to truly have life, it may not be impossible, but it could be improbable depending on how much they worship their riches how much they truly worship, because it all matters with where your heart is. Salvation comes with a change of heart. A change of heart begins with repentance. Repentance is turning away from your sinfulness and self-centered desires, the false gods that we bow down to in order to follow Jesus as his disciple. And here this rich guy, he worshiped his riches, his wealth, more than he wanted God, and he missed the opportunity to enter into a relationship with him. And until we get to that place where we are truly wanting to know God, to follow him because of our love for him, because of what he's done for us, rather than earning love from him or just doing what we're supposed to do to be blessed by him, if we continue to follow this religion that attempts to gain his approval by what we do and don't do without requiring any change in our hearts, then we will continue to slide back into our self-centered religion, a religion that does not bring salvation. And this is why legalism is so popular in churches all over the world and the nation, because legalism gives you rules without having to have relationship. If I follow these rules, then I'm in good with God. But God isn't interested in rule followers. He's interested in having relationship. And if we could recognize who we are and what we have in Jesus we would see that nothing else compares in this life. We would see that there's nothing else like having a relationship with our Creator. You see, it's not about giving up what you're willing to give that honors God. It's about giving up what you're not willing to give up that honors the Lord because what you're unwilling to give up is what is in the way of your heart being wholly His. And when Jesus had this conversation with the rich man, He agreed with the rich man. He's like, you've given much. You've, you've done a lot for God. Your church resume, all the stuff you've done, all the stuff you've tried to avoid, all the church resume that you have, that's on fleek, man. It's good to go. You, you've got all the do's and don'ts down, but there's something missing. It's the relationship aspect of your heart where it's the repentance. It's the sacrificing of the idols to follow me. There's something left in the way for you to give that you've hidden well, that you've repressed, that's in the way of us having relationship. There's still something in the way from your life being wholly mine. See, the beauty of surrendering everything you are to Jesus, Jesus told the rich man, is that when you surrender your life to follow him, he says, great will be your reward. See, God is not a taker which means he doesn't ask you to give up stuff to accumulate wealth for himself. He wants you to give up what's bad for you or, or what's in the way of your relationship with him so that he can bring you into a better life. He's not satisfied with just good. He wants you to have great, that life overflowing. You are a child. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God standing to inherit the entire kingdom of God. Scripture says that what God has placed in store for Jesus 
is also what you are co-inheritors of. God has planned something great for you to experience. But this fundamental question about what kind of life you're going to have now, what kind of eternity you're going to experience, goes back to the very point that Jesus made when the rich man first asked the question, and that is, who is Jesus to you? If he is God, if he is Lord, then giving up this life to follow him to a better life should be an easy decision, even in a difficult situation. But for many, Jesus is Lord in ritual, not in reality. He's, G- he's Lord in religion, but not in relationship. And what Jesus tells this rich man is that the reward that you're looking for comes after the release. What you've been given in your life, what you've been given, your blessings, all the things that you've been building your life upon, your talents, your skills, your abilities, all of that, that is your deposit. Your deposit cannot begin to gain dividends or interest until it's given to the one that can add to it. And until you place your deposit in the bank, it cannot begin to gain interest. And the same is true with our relationship with God. Until we release what's in the way of our relationship, until we release our lives to God, it cannot begin to gain heavenly dividends. This is the principle of release and reward. You release your life to God, He begins to bring reward in your life. You release your decisions to God, He begins to reward your decisions. You release your baggage to God, He begins to reward your situation. You release your circumstances, your health, your decisions, He begins to bring reward into your life. You release, He rewards. This is the principle that He is instilling in His disciples. But for a lot of us, Just like the rich man. When the rich man came to Jesus, he said, Jesus, what must I do to get into heaven? He was asking with an open hand, what can I do to get what I want? But yet his other hand was closed-fisted back behind his back. He had one hand open to God, and his other hand was closed back behind him. When your hand is closed, God can't put anything in there. Nothing else can go in there. It's until we open our hands to God and release what we've been holding on to, can God take what's in the way and begin to put something blessing back in there. And I've realized in my life, it's often the things that I've said no to God about is the very thing he's trying to get my attention about. Back uh, before we were married, before I even met Tony, I grew up in a church that was very heavily in support of a college in Springfield, Missouri, called Baptist Bible College, where I graduated from. And uh, my, my father was in, uh, a professor there, and uh, a lot of students from the college would come to our church. And uh, I found out that at this college, they had a bunch of rules I didn't necessarily agree with. Like, you've got to wear a shirt and tie to class every day. You can't go to movies. If you live on campus, you've got to be in by 10 o'clock. All these kind of weird and crazy rules. I'm like, and my rebellious heart wasn't. Uh, in with that. I wasn't desiring to be a part of that. And so I told God, it's like, I'm never going to that college. I made up in my mind, I'm never going to Baptist Public College. I'm never going there. I don't want any interest. I'm not, God, I'm not going there, right? Had this conversation many times. But God continued to tell me, speak to my heart. It's like, this is where you need to go. And a long time ago, I told God I would never tell him no, that when I surrendered my life, it was his. Even if I didn't agree, I would still follow him. And so finally I gave in and I enrolled in the college and spent a year there. And I hated it. I was rebellious. I had a bad attitude, all these things. Didn't know why God wanted me there. And then uh, the next semester, I kind of took a semester off and 
during that time, I was playing uh, in some bands, playing music, and uh, we were, you know, doing pretty well for ourselves. We put out a, a little six-song CD and, you know, started playing a lot in the local area. And a friend of mine said, hey, there's this conference in Nashville, Tennessee. Your band should think about going out there and competing. And so we got excited about it. We made plans to go. And at the last minute, a couple of guys couldn't make it. And so the drummer of my band at the time and, and I went um, anyways to just get the information to find out how to be better musicians and artists and how to do this music industry thing. And so while we're there, um, we see the different groups perform. And at the end of the first night, there was kind of a meet and greet of uh, the different artists that were there in attendance. And uh, we walked by this group, and I saw the super fly honey that I just had to say hello to. And, uh, and she was there, and, and we, we said hi. We introduced ourselves, and uh, they asked where, where we were from. And I said, we were from Springfield, Missouri. And then the first words out of Tony's mouth was, that's where BBC is. And I'm thinking, how in the world does this girl know what BBC is? There are people in my own city that don't know what BBC is. How does she know in Nashville, Tennessee, the music capital of the world, know what Baptist Bible College is? But then I begin to tell her that's where I attended school. We begin having a conversation. And 12 years later, we're married with four children. Right? So here I'm thinking, what I told God no about, I'm not going to do that. It wasn't until I released that to God that he was able to bring the reward. And I can't fathom all the benefits and blessings that had come from that. I didn't see that the fact that I was going to be standing here on this stage talking to you uh, 12 years ago and beyond. I didn't see the blessing of the four children that I was going to have. But if I had kept closed-fisted and I said, God, I'm not giving that to you. God, I'm not doing that. You can have this area of my life, but you cannot have this area of my life. Then I probably would not be here today. And I wouldn't have the story and the testimony that I have. You see, today, God is trying to get some of you to open that other hand. He's trying to get you to release some things so that he can start blessing some things. God is trying to get you to surrender some areas of your life so he can start rewarding some areas of your life. This country does a really good job of helping people live greedy and self-centered lives. And God is trying to get some of you to start sacrificing financially now so that he can start bringing in reward, both spiritual and emotional health into your family. And I'm not talking about tithing. I'm just talking about how you set up your family. I mean, what good is a nice car in a nice house if your kids feel neglected and abandoned because mom and dad are too busy working their butts off to have relationship with them? What good is that? Right? God has given us a plan for our lives. He said, this is how you live the best life. This is how I want you to follow me. And when we keep our hands closed-fisted, we miss out on the blessings he's wanting to bring into our lives. And no amount of overdoing holidays and birthday presents and things that we can buy and stuff that we can accumulate can make up for lost time. It's time to release some things so God can start rewarding some things. But for many of us, it's sadly that when we go to God in prayer, we lift our hands and we say, God, I need this. I want this. God, do this. But yet our other hand is still close-fisted behind us. And he's saying, when you're willing to open that other hand, that's when the reward is going to come. Verse 25, Matthew 19, the disciples were astounded. He's like, who in the world can be saved? If this guy who's obviously blessed by God can't make it, who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it's impossible. You are sinful. You are wicked. 
You can't earn your way into heaven. No amount of religion is going to help you make up for the sin that you've done. Humanly speaking, it's impossible. But here's the glory of the gospel. But with God, everything is possible. Humanly speaking, it's impossible. But with God, everything is possible. You see, when you go all in with Jesus Christ, meaning you open both hands to him and you say, God, I'm not much, but what I am is yours. Jesus, you have my whole heart. Each day I'm going to wake up and I'm going to choose to follow you. As you open your hands to empty yourself, God begins pouring out the blessing to fill you back up. It's the principle of release and reward. Verse 27, Peter said to him, we've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? And Jesus replied, I assure you that when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone, that's us, who have given up houses, brothers, sisters, father or mother or children or property for my sake, those who have opened their hands and said, Nothing in my life will I cling to. It is all yours, God. They will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. But many who are the greatest now, that cling on, the close fist, those who are holding on to their life now, that are the greatest and important now, then will seem least important. And those who are least important now, who have opened their hands and said, this life doesn't matter, all that matters is you, Jesus. Those will be the greatest then. So what we have right now, all the things we've been blessed with, it is just the deposit. And God is saying, give it to me, and I will bring the reward. The question I have for you today, church, as we think about the word of God and the story of the rich man, is that right now, what are you holding on to so tightly in your life that you have refused to release to Jesus? Maybe you've been afraid to release it to God. Or maybe you just haven't wanted to. You're like, Joey, I'm honest. Like, I really just don't want to do that. I understand that. I've had that in my life. It was like that with going to college and other areas of my life. Sometimes you just don't want to do it. What is it that you've been holding tight? Your grip has been closed that you've been refusing to release to Jesus. Because that today, church, is what God is asking you to let go of. To release to him. You release it. And he brings the reward. So that you can go from a good life. To a great life. Jesus said. Those of you who are weary. And heavy burdened. Come to me. And I will give you rest. Release your struggles. Release your burdens. And I will give you rest. I will reward your weary heart. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes in this place as we go into a time of responding to the Lord. Today, I believe there is going to be a great release. There are many of you here today that have been holding so tightly to things in your life and you've been struggling. You've been wondering why. You've been facing decisions and encountering troubles and trials. And it boils down to what you've been holding on to, the things you've been refusing to let go to God. As you've been wrestling with the Spirit of God through the declaration of His Word today, whatever God is speaking to your heart, whatever He's revealed to you that you've been holding on to tightly, today I challenge you to let that go. Maybe it's something you need to stop doing. 
picked up some bad habits. Maybe it's something you've been neglecting to do. You know he's been calling you and asking you to do something, and you've been neglecting to do that. Whatever it is that he's been speaking to your heart, today is the day you release it to him. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, no one looking around, let's all stand to our feet in this place as we're getting ready to go into a time of worship. Just in an attitude of prayer, no one looking around, please. Those of you that are ready to respond to God and release what you have been holding on to, as a symbolic gesture in this place today, I'm going to ask you to clench your fists and just hold them tightly. And I want you to think about those areas of your life, those things that you have been withholding from God, the things you know God's been asking you to release to Him, your burdens, your struggles, your frustrations, some decisions you've been needing to make some challenges that you might be facing in the future. Areas of your life you've not given over to Jesus, whatever it is, clench your fists right now in this place. And I want you to pray, and I want you to confess what that is to God. Say, God, I confess to you I've kept this closed off from you. Just in this place, declare that, confess that to to the Lord. God, I've kept this area from you. You. I've held on to this, God. I've not given this to you. With your hands clenched tight. Right now, I just want you to repeat this after me. Say, I release it to you. Now, in Jesus' name. I release it to you now. In Jesus' name. I want you to open your hands to him. And imagine that lifting up off of your hands to the Lord in prayer. And today, I'm going to ask you to commit that you release it to him each and every day. You trust him with your life. You let him be Lord. Who is Jesus to you? If he's good and he is God, then he is worthy of our trust. Amen.